It's good to be with you guys this morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I am one of the pastors here at Veritas State, and we're so glad that you're here this morning. Um, if you would, if this is your first time here, or if you've been a guest for us uh, with us for a, a, a few weeks now, or what have you, uh, take a few moments uh, after the gathering to grab a Connect card on your way out. They should be, uh, I don't think they're, they're actually on this uh, table in the back, but they're on the table out in the lobby, um, and, uh, and we'd love for you to grab one of those uh, and take a moment, fill it out, let us know how we can be praying for you, how we can get you uh, connected with what God is doing here in our church family, um, and uh, again, let us know how we can be praying for you. There's a little uh, space for prayer requests on those Connect cards, and we count it an honor and a joy to be able to pray for you uh, this week. The elders uh, and I, the pastors and I, Uh, receive those, and and we make sure to take time to pray for those throughout the week. And so please uh, take a moment to uh, fill one of those out. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, because we're about to read the Bible and and preach the Bible and and look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 33 through 37, if you don't have a Bible, there are white and blue uh, paperback Bibles uh, in the back there. You can go grab one of those, or you can look up on your device uh, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, we're in the ESV version, if that helps you uh, get to the text that we're about to read. Uh, Matthew 5, 33 through 37. So we have been in a sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount where we are just slowly walking through Jesus' justly famous Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we started with looking at the Beatitudes and we went one by one and looked at the Beatitudes and as we're getting into the bo- as we've gotten into the body of the sermon, uh, we've seen Jesus discuss this theme and kind of tease out this theme uh, that we are calling whole person righteousness. Whole person righteousness. He is calling his people to what we are calling whole person righteousness. He says in uh, in Matthew five that he is calling his people to exceeding righteousness, a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And as you read throughout the Sermon on the Mount, what you see is that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about is a merely external righteousness. It's a righteousness that conforms to mere external norms uh, of their culture in the day and their sort of misinterpretations of the Word of God. Uh, It is a, um, a righteousness that conforms to pietistic practices like prayer and fasting and almsgiving and whatnot, but in order to be seen by others. And what he calls this external righteousness is hypocrisy. Uh, Now, what we typically think of when we think of hypocrisy is you um, do one thing in one setting, you do another in another setting. And that, of course, is a form of hypocrisy. And actually, Jesus addresses that kind of hypocrisy in our text this morning. Uh, But it's not just that. It's also uh, hypocrisy, according to Jesus, is a mere external conformity to outward uh, um, standards while not applying the word of God, the law of God, the commands of God, the truth of God to one's heart. And so Jesus is taking us into the commands of God and, and the, the word of God and these, these, sort of, uh, these sort of twistings and torturings of the word of God that the Pharisees had so often done in that day. And he's showing how the word of God truly applies to our lives 
as a new covenant society, this society that is called and formed and sent to be salt and light, to be a, a sign and a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God to this present evil age. And that's what he's calling us to here as we get into Matthew five thirty three through 37. We've seen so far, he's addressed this whole person righteousness. He's, he's addressed topics uh, such as uh, murder and how murder is actually uh, connected to this disposition of the heart that we talked about, this anger and this bitterness in one's heart. He talked about how adultery, uh, you know, merely uh, externally conforming to the command to not commit adultery is not enough. As we look at this call to whole person righteousness, he's actually calling his people not to lust after others. And then we looked last week at divorce and what whole person righteousness has to say about the topic of divorce. And now we get into what whole person righteousness, what Jesus has to say about whole person righteousness and oaths as we look at Matthew 5, through 37. So if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, through 37. And this is what Jesus says to us, church. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you bless the reading and proclamation of your word this morning with the presence and power of your spirit that we would be conformed to the image of your beautiful son who is truth, beauty, and goodness incarnate. Help us to be conformed to his image, to bring you much glory, honor, and praise, and much good to one another, and much good to the city of Dayton. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, the past two Sundays, uh, I can't help but feel as if you've all been kind of paying a bit more attention than normal. Um, you've had a bit more incentive to do, to do so. You know, two Sundays ago, we talked about lust and adultery and, and sex. And, and I feel like whenever the word sex is mentioned up here, I like note your ears perk up. I notice people pay a little more attention than, than normal. Um, and then last week, uh, we, we looked at the, the difficult and complex and controversial topic of divorce. It's difficult, it's complex, it's controversial because there's differing interpretations about uh, what the teaching of the Bible is concerning the topic. It's difficult, it's complex, it's, it's controversial because it's something that has touched probably most of the lives in this room in one way or another. And so we had a bit more interest and an incentive to pay attention last Sunday too. But I'm afraid that as we get into this topic in this week, perhaps you'll feel like the incentive is not there. Like oaths, really. Okay, uh, it's time to catch up on my grocery list. Um, It's time to catch up on all the sleep I missed this week, starting school and everything. Uh, I think that would be a huge, huge mistake. Um, Why do I say that? Of course I would say that. Why do I say that? Uh, Well, because truthfulness ought to be one of the most compelling attributes of the people of God in this current cultural moment. Now, we live in what some people call a a post-truth culture. We live in a culture 
wherein many are questioning or even denying the existence of truth as an objective reality. We live in a culture wherein truth is really just seen as a matter of perspective rather than a real objective reality. And in that kind of culture, you can't count on someone to tell you the truth if they don't believe that there's any actual objective truth. And so there's a lack of trust. And in that kind of culture, one of the most countercultural and distinctive attributes that the church can, can and, and should have is that we ought to be a people who are trustworthy. We ought to be a people who, can, who tell the truth. Our word ought to mean something. We ought to be a people of truthfulness. We ought to be a people of integrity. Not saying one thing in one place and then saying another thing in another place. Not saying one thing and then doing another. Not making a promise and then, or not saying that we'll be in a certain place, but not show up. And this is what Jesus is calling us to in this, this call to whole person righteousness. Really, whole person righteousness must mean that we are a people of integrity. Integrity. If you're, if you're a, a math major, you know this word integer. What does it mean? It means whole. That's where we get the word integrity from. Being a person of integrity means being whole, not being fractured and divided, but being whole, being consistent, being a people whose speech and words mean something. This must be the case for us. You know, truthfulness is actually one of the most foundational building blocks for true human community and relationships. And without truthfulness and therefore trust, community, relationships, society will most certainly crumble. You know, scholar Lewis Smeads, he, he asks us to, uh, old, old Smeedy, I call him sometimes, um, he, I don't call him that. Uh, he, he asks us to imagine a, a society uh, uh, without truthfulness and trust, and he describes it in alarming terms. And it sounds like he's describing our current cultural moment. He says this, he says, Imagine a society in which no one trusted another to keep a promise, in which every leader was expected to lie as a matter of course, in which every teacher was suspected as an academic cheat, and every preacher a moral fraud in which contracts were expected to be honored when they paid well, and a friend's word was no better than a cigarette advertisement. No person in such a society could ever confide in a friend or seek help from a counselor. No partner could ever bank on the loyalty of another. No one could make decisions in assurance of having the facts in hand. No one could be certain of his neighbor's next move. Life would be brutalized. Without trust, we change from a community to a pack, from a society to a gang. You see, without truthfulness and trust, society, community, relationships disintegrate. I think that's part of the reason we're seeing such polarization in our current cultural climate. American citizens, sometimes rightfully so, but they're, we're constantly suspicious of politicians and their promises. We're suspicious of business owners and their, their integrity. We're suspicious of, of pastors and their lives behind the scenes. We're, we're suspicious of spouses even. Like why else would, would uh, prenuptial agreements exist and be so common? We're a culture wherein conspiracy theories thrive. When people tweet or say something in an interview on the news and it's slightly unclear... 
People are quick to jump on what is said and, and assign motives and meaning without ever asking what someone meant by their words. We could go on and on, but, 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 but much of this stems from the fact that trust is in short supply because truthfulness is an increasingly rare commodity. But Jesus calls the church, his new covenant society, to something better. He calls us not to be that, that kind of society that Lewis Smedes describes, but to be a society where we can trust one another, where we can trust one another's words, where we can actually confide in one another, where we can actually be genuine and vulnerable and transparent with, with one another, where we can count on one another not to share misinformation, where we can sh- count on one another not to gossip, where we can count on one another to keep our word. He calls us to truthfulness. He calls us to integrity. He calls us as a people pursuing whole per- person righteousness to tell the truth. And that's our big idea for this morning. We're going to unpack that by looking at our now familiar outline, uh, the command explained, explored, and applied. The command explained, explored, and applied. Now, first, the command explained. Command explained. In verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, uh, this is not an exact quote from any particular scriptural text. Rather, it's a sort of summary of the teaching of several verses from the books of Moses. So there's Leviticus 19.12, which says, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. There is Numbers 30 verse 2, which says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. There's Deuteronomy 23.21, which says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely required of you, and you will be guilty of sin. And really what all of these texts are doing for us is they're actually explaining and teasing out and applying uh, uh, the, uh, uh, one of the commandments from the Ten Commandments, uh, the third commandment, uh, Exodus 20, verse 7, which says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. He's saying, listen, we as a people are called to honor the name of the Lord. And therefore, when we make an oath in God's name, we are to keep that oath as people who hallow and honor God's precious name. That's what he's calling his people to. Not to profane God's name and dishonor God's name through perjury and lies. Now, as we saw last week, many of the religious teachers and elite of the day had taken this particular teaching from God's law and they tortured it and twisted it until it was actually bearing almost no resemblance to all the original intent of the teaching. Uh, if you were to go and read some of the documents of that day in the Mishnah uh, uh, that, that sort of outlined Jewish legal code and how people were to practically obey the, the law of Moses, you would see some interesting ways that people applied this commandment. And you would see that sometimes uh, there was instruction for people to, when they swore an oath, to sort of sneakily keep an out for themselves just in case it actually became too great an inconvenience for them to keep their word. And Jesus actually addresses this in some of the, in, in the sermon here. He says in verse 34, he says, don't take an oath at all. 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, why does he use those specific examples? Well, well, there were apparently uh, some who, who, as a way of keeping it out for themselves, would rather than make their oath to God, they would make an oath to heaven. Or rather than make an oath to God, they would swear by the earth. Or rather than swear by the name of God, they would swear by Jerusalem. Or rather than swear by God, they would swear by their own head. And the reason they would do that uh, is because if they swore by God to do a certain thing or keep a certain promise, they they thought, okay, well, if I did that, I would be obligated to keep my word. But if they didn't, if they, would, uh, if, if they didn't swear by God's name, because if they swore by God's name, they didn't keep their word, they would be guilty of profaning God's name. They would be guilty of sin before God. Uh, but if they swore by something else, then maybe they wouldn't be actually uh, bound to keep their word. You know, what, what does it mean to, to, to swear an oath by God? It means to invoke God's presence when you're making an oath so that if you're making an oath, you're making it to him. It's as if you're making an oath to him. If you do that, obviously the religious leaders of the day said that you'd be obligated to keep that promise. But, but on the other hand, according to their reasoning, if you didn't swear by God, but instead swore by heaven or by earth or by their, or your, your own head or by Jerusalem, then you wouldn't be guilty of profaning God's name and therefore wouldn't be guilty of sin if you didn't keep your oath. And so Jesus cuts through this nonsense here. And he says, no, 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 no. It would be better for you not to make an oath at all. Because really, it's all the same. Everywhere you go, you're in the presence of God because God is omnipresent. Really, everywhere you go, you're in the presence of God. And everything you say, you say in the presence of God. And everything you swear by actually already belongs to God as the one true sovereign of the universe. If you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God. If you swear by the earth, you're swearing by the footstool of God, and thereby you're swearing by the name of God. If you swear by Jerusalem, you're swearing by the city wherein the temple sits, the place of God's presence on the earth, and therefore you're swearing by the king who dwells there. If you swear by your own head, recognize that that head on your shoulders is actually under the rule and reign of the one and only sovereign, and you are thereby swearing by him. He cuts through the same exact nonsense when he rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 16 through 22. Listen to what he says here. He says, as he rebukes the Pharisees for playing these little games, he says to them, woe to you, blind gods, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple who has made the gold sacred? And You say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see, Jesus is showing here that those original commands in Exodus 20, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they were given in order to call God's people to honor and hallow the name of God. They weren't given as a means to excuse dishonesty. 
And yet that's how many of the religious teachers and religious elite were were treating the command in Jesus' day. And so he says to his people, to this new covenant society, formed and sent to represent him on the earth, he says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, don't play those word games. Instead, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Mean what you say and say what you mean. Be honest, be forthright, be straight with others. Tell the truth, be honest in your speech, be honest in your dealings with people. Don't don't try to sneakily keep an out for yourself. Don't say that you're gonna be somewhere and then not show up. If someone asks you if you wanna do something tonight, don't do this weird, flaky millennial thing where you say, yeah, hold on, I need to check on some things and really all you're doing, you don't need to check on anything, you're just waiting to see if something better comes up. Don't do that. Be straight with people. The whole person righteousness that Jesus has been teaching us about is completely at odds with this kind of dishonesty and deceits. You know, if, you're, if you live a life of dishonesty and deceit, you're fractured, you're divided, you're, you're one thing in one setting, you're another in another setting. You say one thing here and another thing there. But Jesus is saying all of life here is lived in the presence of God and under the sovereignty of God. Heaven and earth, the temple, your own head, all belong to God. And therefore, you're called to live as if if everything belongs to Him and as if every word you speak is spoken in the presence of God. You're called to speak as if you're always in His presence. So don't say one thing in one setting and do another. Don't tell someone you'll be there and then not show up. Don't look for ways to make promises while keeping it out for yourself. Don't tell half-truths. Don't intentionally disguise the truth. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.21, we are to speak the truth to our neighbor since we are members of one another. And really, that about sums up what Jesus is saying here. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. That's the command explained. Now let's explore it. And what we've been doing here is just kind of, as we've looked, tried to explore, is, is we're asking questions that might just come up in your mind as we read the text. And, uh, you know, we have certain cultural assumptions and beliefs and practices that lead us to naturally ask certain questions about what Jesus is saying sometimes. And, and sometimes there's something that we might just not quite understand that Jesus is saying, so we want to ask questions about it. And, of course, one of the questions that probably comes to mind is this. Should we not make oaths at all then? Should we not make vows? Should we not make pledges? Should we not do that sort of thing? Should we just say yes or no and not swear or make vows or promises or pledges? Now, One thing you might wonder about is if oaths, vows, and pledges are the same thing. There are subtle distinctions, of course, like an oath is typically something you swear to do in the future, while a vow is a a formal commitment to a particular purpose or or person or or people. Uh, Pledges might be more like a promise made to do a particular thing. There are, you know, like subtle distinctions, but, but they're close enough that we could put them in the same kind of bucket, here that Jesus is addressing. So should we not engage in these sorts of practices at all? You know, and that's not an insignificant question. That, like, that affects many of the people in this 
room. I mean, think about what that would mean if Jesus was saying here that we ought not make oaths, vows, pledges, period, point, blank, full stop. It means that as Christians, we couldn't sign mortgages. It means that as Christians, like we couldn't serve in the military. Some of you cannot serve in the military. You serve in the military. It means you couldn't act as a witness in a court of law. And obviously, there are many other instances too where that might come to mind that require oaths, vows, that sort of thing that we shouldn't and couldn't participate in as Christians if we had to abide by a command like this, if it meant that. And, and actually, there have been Christian traditions that believe that to be the case. Many Anabaptist church traditions refuse to practice or uh, participate in a court of law or serve in the military or sign mortgages because they see oath-taking, period, as a violation of Jesus' teaching here. However, that's not what Jesus is saying here. That actually misunderstands what Jesus is saying here, and it makes it all about oaths, which the Pharisees have been doing in the first place. It's not, it's not mainly a teaching about oaths, it's a teaching about honesty. And so he's, he's not forbidding oaths entirely. Obviously, making vows, oaths, and, and pledges are obviously it's an activity involved in making covenants. To enter into a covenant with someone else, you have to make binding promises to them. There are often witnesses that need to be present in order to make such commitments binding. And I would say, covenants are not a human idea. That's God's idea. It's a divine idea. Marriage is an example of this. When in a wedding ceremony, you, in the, making the covenant of marriage, you exchange vows. And those vows are what the marital relationship are based on from that day forward. And that's God's idea. Actually, God himself is, is the one who enters into covenants with his people and he makes oaths and, and, and he swears by his own name. In Genesis twenty two sixteen, we have an example of this. God is speaking to Abraham. After Abraham brings Isaac, his son, to the mountain to sacrifice him. And the Lord takes his, or, or holds back his hand in the last moment and provides a ram to sacrifice instead. In response, God says to him, Reminding him of the covenant that he made with him, he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the enemy in his gates and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. See, God swore to Abraham that he would bless and multiply his family and that he would bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring. And, and he swore it by his own name. And we know that he kept his, his promise, his oath, because he sent his son, who is Abraham's offspring, who blessed all the nations of the earth. Additionally, I, according to the Bible, about what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper, this is something we participate in every week. In the Lord's Supper, God is swearing and pledging himself to us to forgive us, to never leave us, to never forsake us, and to, uh, to, to renew all things at the return of Jesus Christ. He's pledging this to us every single week. This, this cup, Jesus said, is the new covenant in his blood. It's a, a sign of God's pledge to us. It's a sign of Christ's oath to us, Christ's pledge to us. That's actually, you may not know this, this is also something you do every week when you participate in the Lord's Supper. It's something you did when you were baptized, if you're a Christian. You were swearing allegiance 
to the king of the universe. You were swearing allegiance to Christ. You were making a pledge and a vow to him. And furthermore, Jesus himself, he actually participated in an oath in court. Now, later in Matthew, actually, the high priest puts Jesus on oath. He says in Matthew 26, 63, I adjure you, speaking to Jesus, he says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus' response isn't to say, whoa, 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 I refuse to make an oath here. He doesn't remain silent either. Rather, he speaks the truth under oath, and he says, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So you see, Jesus is, is not making a complete prohibition against oaths. However, if we are going to take Jesus' words seriously, I would say a couple things. One is that oaths should not be necessary for us to be truthful. As the people of God, as the people of the God who is truth, we have to be a people who keep our word. We should not eat, need an oath for us to keep our word. If you say you'll do something, you should do it unless you're absolutely providentially hindered from doing so. If someone asks you a question, you should answer it truthfully, even if it costs you and pains you to do so. You should tell the truth pain, plainly. And you shouldn't need oaths to do that. Second, I would say oaths should be used sparingly. Like in just everyday plain speech, you should not swear to God or swear on your mother's grave or swear on your life. You should not, in everyday normal talk, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. We're going to see that such talk actually at best gives the impression and at worst gives the indication that your word is not trustworthy otherwise. So oaths aren't completely forbidden, but they shouldn't be something we enter into lightly or casually in everyday speech. They should be used sparingly, only in certain settings, in legal and religious settings, typically. They should absolutely, should not be necessary for us to be truthful in our speech. Jesus is telling us here that our yes should be yes, and our no should be no. Our word, whether an oath is involved or not, should be truthful in binding. Command explored. Now let's apply it. I should say, let's apply it some more. I mean, the practicality of Jesus' words here are really astounding. But still, before we close, we would be remiss if we didn't apply it in a few more particular ways. It might be needed in our time and place. First, and this is absolutely necessary for our day and age because of social media, but telling the truth does not mean sharing your opinion about every single thing. Telling the truth does not mean sharing your opinion on every little thing. You know, I was in a meeting with, with a group of pastors this last week. We, we gathered, and Governor uh, DeWine was there, and, and Mayor uh, Whaley was there, and uh, to talk about the recent tragedy and what they're doing in legislation to, to do their best to prevent such tragedies. And, and the governor talked for a little while, and the mayor talked for a little while, and then there was a time for, you know, questions, and there was microphones, so you could walk up and, and ask a question. And most of the questions and comments were helpful and edifying and commendable and thought-provoking. I benefited much from being in the room. However, there were a small number of people that just went up the microphone, and it seemed just to share their opinion 
about something. And I'm sure, you know, we're all familiar with the sensation here. When encountering something about which you have strong opinions, you can start to just feel the urge. I just got to say something. Scrolling down social media on your feed and you see someone make certain comments about gun control, for or against it, and you have strong opinions. Or about the upcoming election. Or about how cats are just the worst, smelliest, most pointless pets a person can have, which they are. (laughs) Just fight me. I, I don't know. You have strong opinions about these things. And so you just feel like you have to make them known. I know that's a silly example, but, but you know what I'm saying? Listen, let me relieve you now of the responsibility to share your opinion about every little thing. It's exhausting. Like, I know I've tried it. I, like, it's exhausting. It's not worth it. And actually, being the kind of person that does this doesn't make people think that you're the kind of person to whom they should come for advice. It actually makes you the kind of person people dread being around or having serious conversations with. People will avoid you. It actually just frustrates people and repels them. So one of the most important lessons I've learned in my life in the last decade is that faithfulness doesn't equate to sharing Faithfulness is not the equivalence of sharing your opinion about every single thing. Not everything is worth you speaking up about. Not every situation calls for you to speak up, even about things of importance sometimes. You've got to be discerning. Tell the truth, but telling the truth does not mean sharing your opinion about every little thing. And second, let's try to identify though, like some of the subtle ways that we actually fail to tell the truth. Okay, so, so watch out for subtle ways that we fail to tell the truth. You know, because I'm sure that we all know that an outright fabrication of a story or an event or communicating an utter falsity when questioned is a lie. We know that. But there are more subtle forms of lying and failing to tell the truth that we can participate in and simply excuse ourselves because it's not an outright fabrication. The Pharisees were actually kind of doing this. They found ways to sort of excuse their their lies. We can lie and fail to to tell the truth in a number of different ways. And and one way that we can do this is is to omit necessary information in our communication with others. Perhaps at work in order to make a sale or to convince someone to do business with you. You fail to mention one piece of information that might discourage them from coming on board. You fail to tell the whole truth, and therefore you don't tell the truth. Another way we can lie, a more subtle form of lying, is we can lie by exaggeration. You know, you and your spouse or your close friend are fighting, and you say, you always do this, or you never do that. Is that true? Do they always do this or never? No, that's not true. You're intentionally misrepresenting them and their character in order to make them feel ashamed and in your debt. Another way, another way is by making empty promises or threats. We talked about this, this kind of form of flakiness that is so common today where people uh, will, will ask you, you know, hey, you want to do this tonight? And you go, well, hold on, I've got to check on a few things. You don't have to check on anything. You're just waiting for something better to come along. That's an empty, that's empty speech. Or, or another way we do this, if, if you're a parent, you tell your child 
that they need to do something. If they don't do it, you say, I will discipline you. But then you don't actually discipline them or plan on discipline. You don't follow through. You lied. You did not tell the truth. Another way, this is like a more, I think, Christian, Christianly appropriate or Christianly accepted way to tell a lie. It's culturally acceptable in Christian circles. Is to sacrifice the truth on the altar of niceness. We can do this in a couple of different ways. You know, if, you, if you're, say you're in a city group with a person who is constantly controlling conversation, is domineering and rude and interrupts and all those sorts of things, and you just won't say anything because you don't want to upset them. Or, or perhaps you do go to have that hard conversation. You actually pursue that conversation, but in the name of niceness, you couch it in such, in such fluffy terms that you don't communicate clearly. And you think of Chris Traeger on Parks and Rec when he breaks up with Anne. She actually has no idea that he broke up with her because he said it in such a nice way, he put it in such positive terms. That actually happened to me once. When someone came to me and they actually told me that they were leaving the church. I had no idea because they put it so nicely. I didn't find out until several weeks later that they had left. I had no idea. So they put it so nicely. We can fail to tell the truth by being unclear in the name of niceness, kind of dancing around the truth, disguising the truth in a veil of niceness. Don't sacrifice the truth in the name of niceness. Don't, don't be rude. Don't be crass. Don't be harsh. It's not loving to speak the truth in love. But part of speaking the truth in love means being clear. It means being clear. Now these and, and more, they're all ways that we can kind of fail to tell people the truth in kind of more subtle forms. These are in more ways that we fail to tell the truth. And, and why do we do this? Why do we fail to tell the truth? Well, typically because the truth costs something, doesn't it? It costs displeasing someone. It costs our reputation. It costs a strained relationship. And sometimes in more kind of dire situations, it might cost a job. It might cost an F in class. It might, it might cost something that you don't want to pay, and so you don't want to tell the truth. And so lastly, I just say, tell the truth even when it costs we're obligated to tell the truth, even when it costs. Perhaps you've witnessed something immoral done at work, or maybe you even participated in it. Perhaps coming forward and telling the truth might get you fired or make you unpopular with your coworkers. You don't, you don't like the cost, so you're moving on as if nothing ever happened. It might be costly, but you ought to come forward and tell the truth. Perhaps there's something that you need to tell your spouse but you're afraid to because it might cause a fight, cause them to doubt their ability to trust you. You ought to tell the truth. Perhaps you've got an ongoing, besetting, habitual sin in your life that you've never mentioned to anyone in your city group, ever. And it might be embarrassing. You might feel ashamed, but you ought to come clean and tell the truth. Here's the thing. Here's the reality, guys. Whatever the truth might cost us, lies are more costly in the end 
Absolutely, like unquestionably, lies are more costly in the end. Lies diminish us. Stanley Hauerwas once said, lies make our lives ugly, robbing us of the ability to even trust ourselves. They make our lives ugly. And furthermore, lives, they, they harm our relationships with others. Nothing will corrupt and destroy relationships in the home, in the church, at work, in the neighborhood faster than lies. And most importantly, for us Christians, most importantly, lies are an assault on the nature and character of God. God is a God of truth. He is the truth. Hebrews 6.18 says that He cannot lie. He is the truth. He is pure veracity. And because of this, Revelation 21.8 says that the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, he says, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. You see, lies cost more both temporally and eternally than the truth ever does. Lying will cost us more than the truth ever will. Your lies will find you out eventually. Lying inevitably sets you on a collision course with reality. Namely, God in His holiness And you see, that's why our God, Christian, is not content with simply allowing his elect to remain comfortable with the lies we tell ourselves and others. Indeed, that's why he's calling his people in this passage to this greater righteousness, this whole person righteousness, this integrity of thought, deed, and speech. He doesn't want us to continue in the sins that actually destroy our lives both temporally and eternally. He wants to bring us out of the darkness and into light, out of destruction, into life, out of this fracturedness and into wholeness. But he not only teaches us here to forsake lying and untruthfulness, he actually paid the cost our lies himself. I don't want you to see, this, this teaching would be absolutely crushing if it wasn't for the person and the work of Jesus. That Christ came and he lived the life of truth that you should have lived. Like realize Christ was crucified because he was a truth teller. He came to us in John 1.14 full of grace and truth. John 14, 6, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth. He is the truth in the life. And being full of grace and truth, being the truth, cost him dearly. You know, the truth costs, and indeed, his crucifixion was the cost for him. The religious elite, they hated him because he told the truth, and he was crucified because he told the truth. It cost him, but it wasn't just the truth he was paying for, it was for your sin. It was for your lies. But it was a cost that he was gladly willing to pay because in paying that cost, he took your lies to the grave and he rose again so that you might be a new creation in him. And it's only in accepting that, in believing that, in receiving that good news, 
that we're able to be this new covenant society described in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how the religious leaders were viewing oaths in that day. They thought that when you swore an oath by the name of God, that you were invoking the presence of God so that your oath was an oath to him. But as Christians in the new covenant, we don't invoke the presence of God by swearing an oath everywhere we go. We are carriers of the presence of God everywhere we go. You know, we are indwelled by the presence and power of the person of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says that the church is this this new temple, the new temple of God, the place wherein his holy presence dwells. And therefore, all the words we speak are spoken as if we're in the presence of God, because we are. Therefore, the words we speak ought to be words of integrity, words of truthfulness. Every word we speak, we speak as Christians in the presence of God. We live, as John Calvin talked about, Coram Deo. We live all of life in the face of God, in the presence of God. Therefore, all the words we speak ought to make the truth plain and clear. All the words we speak ought to bring glory and honor to God and not to faithfully represent him as the God of truth. As people pursuing whole person righteousness, we tell the truth. We tell the truth. Let's pray. Father, would you seal this word upon our hearts? Would you comfort us with the reality that Christ is the truth for us and that we are united to him through faith so that he is also the truth in us, so that we are a people of truth? We know that apart from Christ, we, I am a man of unclean lips, and we are a people of unclean lips. But we're reminded as we come to this table now that like in Isaiah 6, the seraphim took the sacrifice, the, the coal from the sacrifice on the altar and touched it to our lips, that you are touching our lips with the sacrifice of Christ and you are declaring to us that our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for and we are new creations in Christ and sent to be a people that declare and tell the truth as a witness to the world of your veracity and truthfulness. Would you comfort us? Would you remind us? Would you empower us? Would you equip us now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few moments of silent reflection before coming to the table.